Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder that is joining us. We're going to be talking about scaling, uh, financing, you know, all of the good stuff that we like to hear. You know, our founder today, you know, he's uh, quite inspiring. You know, not only he went from Europe to the U.S., but then, you know, also he did his studies there. And, and now he's really, you know, going on a rocket ship that uh, you're all going to very much enjoy listening and hearing about his journey. So without further ado, Let's welcome our guest today, Philippe Roesch Schlander. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. So born and raised in Germany, Philippe. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Yeah, I, I, I was born and raised in Germany, um, uh, played soccer a lot, um, enjoyed my time. Uh, my both parents are entrepreneurs. So clearly kind of that always was a bit of kind of my story. I always felt that I... I like to challenge rules that in my mind make no sense versus just following rules. Um, and, um, but then I, I, I attended high school and, and, and then my studies actually brought me to New York City. Um, and that was for me in that moment, the most exciting time of my life. I got in touch with, um, you know, the, the, the U.S. tech scene uh, via a venture capital seminar that I attended at Columbia Business School which was held by two adjunct professors who were in their professional life, actually VCs. And it was really for me the first time that I heard about the term venture capital. And, uh, and it really excited me uh, so much that I decided, well, this is actually where I want to spend my, my life. Um, and then, you know, living in New York City, my friends uh, told me that if you go to a U.S. business school, you have to start wearing your Columbia uh, T-shirts something we don't do in Germany. Um, and you also have to go to our uh, university's own gym. So I went uh, to uh, the Columbia gym, which is in the basement uh, at 116th and Broadway. Um, and, and, and I didn't know how to use the gym properly. You know, I was one of those users then that would kind of hit the quick start button on cardio machines, even though that has nothing to do with my training goal and, 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 my, and, and my body. I would do on strength machines something like three sets of 15 reps of a random training weight. And when I always finished my workout, I kind of wondered as a very competitive soccer player, hey, did I win today? Like, what's my score count of this? Um, 
And uh, yeah, so that kind of felt to me like, wow, hey, 20%, almost 20% of America is going to a gym, but most of them don't really know how to work out properly. That's a big opportunity, specifically at the intersection of healthcare. Um, and so, yeah, then, then I came back from the US and founded uh, together with my high school friend, Florian, who attended Berkeley while I was at Columbia. We both came back at the same time and then we founded Egypt. Now, now it's very interesting this because, you know, obviously, you know, you, you incubated the problem uh, or you incubated the solution to the problem by, you know, having that exposure and seeing, you know, like the whole gym, you know, experience and, and so forth. But I guess also being in New York City, it gives you a, a different perspective. You know, I mean, I'm uh, also European, just like you. And I remember when I moved to New York City to go after, you know, my studies and do my master's degree as well. It opened up so many things, and it also gave me the idea that anything was possible. How did how did things change for you? Because I mean, obviously, the European culture is very much finish school and and become a banker, a consultant, or a lawyer, or a doctor. So uh, when, especially back then, when you started the company it was 2011. You know, it's not it was it was not that trendy to have a startup. Now it's trendy. You know, in Europe, but back then it was not the case. So so how do you think that being in New York City opened up you know your way of thinking? Yeah, I, I can't even overstate how important that time for me was. Um, like I always tell people when I touch down in New York City kind of, and I see everyone running and not walking on the streets, it gives me an additional level of energy that I feel. Um, and just people are so ambitious. And that definitely kind of gave me the right spin in life. And, and I remember very well the conversation with my very dear uncle, Peter, um, when back in Germany, when I told him that I'm going to found a, a fitness technology company, uh, his comment was, hey, boy, are you really sure about that? I can't imagine there's still something that hasn't been uh, invented yet. That's, 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 that's unbelievable. You know, sometimes, you know, the things that, they, that you're like super surprised and shocked, you know, I, I can't believe this hasn't been done. You know, it's just, you just got to jump eh? and, and go for it. I mean, it, 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 in this case, it's what you did, but, but walk us through how was that, uh, process of of incubating, you know, what ended up becoming Egym. I mean, how how did it came so apparent? Uh, you know, the idea. How did you go about also uh, partnering up with your co-founder that was in California at Berkeley? I mean, walk us through, you know, that that sequence of events. Yeah. So so th there was really two things. Um, I decided that I want to be a tech entrepreneur in New York City, and I had this experience. Uh, at the Columbia gym where I felt, wow, like so many smart people go here and the experience is broken. So those two things came together. Basically, I experienced a big problem as a user and I decided fixing such problems is exactly going to be my path. Um, and then I st started to dig deeper um, and I tried to understand like, hey, am I the only one that is not successful in the gym? And I realized, no, there's actually lots of people that are not, su not, su not successful. And um, And kind of, I realized kind of there's basically three people going to the gym, three groups of people. This is super broad. You could go much more into detail, but very broadly speaking, there are three groups of people. Group one are what we call expert users. Those are people that have a background in exercise science or have maybe taken 10 years of PT classes. So they just know everything about working out and they are really just kind of almost renting equipment. Um, they are typically very successful with their workouts. Then there's the second group of people. We call them engaged users. Um, those are another roughly 10%. People that don't know what they're doing, 
but they're willing to move mountains with their investments and their engagement. So they buy human personal trainers. Um, they have an additional Peloton bike at home. Um, and so they're also, uh, very, they have a very high chance of being successful. And then there is this 80%, which is also the entire growth of the market. But now already in the gym, roughly 80% of people that have no background in exercise science and don't know what they're doing, but they're also not, uh, you know, buying human personal training services. And so they have basically statistically no chance of being successful. Um, and, and so I was one of those. I, I didn't know what I'm doing, but I wasn't in, in that, in that time, I wasn't even able to afford a personal trainer. And so I just did random things. Um, and, uh, and so the, the conclusion was, Hey, let's develop technology that provides everyone inside the gym with an experience as if they had access to a human personal trainer. So the way we thought about it was you walk on the training floor, all the equipment knows you. Just imagine like all the workout machines are robots. You walk on the training floor, all the machines know you set up automatically and guide you through an optimal workout based on all the data we now about, know about you and your training goal. Um, and so, and, and, and when you finish your workout, we'll provide you with data around how you, you know, what we've been collecting about you, but more importantly, we'll provide you with meaningful analysis on how you've been able to improve your health. And, and that's a very important point because what I also realized in this kind of scoping phase was that the gym industry could play a major role within the transformation of the largest market in the world, which is healthcare. When you think of the US healthcare market, it's right now, I think roughly like 18% of GDP. So think about it. Every dollar spent in the US economy, 18 cents go on healthcare. And more than 50% of that uh, market is money spent on chronic conditions. Um, just to give you a number, like just muscle skeletal diseases in the US only. So that's like back pain, problems with your joints and so on. That's $1.3 trillion a year. Um, it's a massive market. And how is America spending that money? Well, it's spent on, you know, uh, painkillers, massages, and oftentimes unnecessary surgeries. But what people should be doing, in, for example, uh, in the case of back pain, is strengthening and lengthening their muscles and get rid of muscle imbalances. So that's like the the wheelhouse of gyms. So if we could kind of make sure that the gym works for everyone, um, you know, like you go to a restaurant and afterwards you're not hungry anymore. Imagine if you go to the gym and afterwards you don't have back pain anymore, then the gym could play a major role in this huge transformation of healthcare. Um, and so that was basically our uh, thesis going into this. We are not, you know, the brand for like, elite athletes we are the brand for everyone we fix the gym product um, and and then connect it to healthcare in the meantime we also have products that satisfy expert users but basically the most value will be created if we can make sure everyone can work out successfully and be connected to healthcare so that they would rather work out and live a preventative lifestyle versus you know taking painkillers and, and, and such things you know, it's it's so important that you are touching on this because I find that, you know, it's a very interesting transition that we are experiencing where, you know, basically people have been and, and, and doctors in the U.S., they're trained to cure. 
they're not really, you know, uh, there to prevent, right? I guess like if, if they were preventing, there would be no business, right? But I find that there's been like a really interesting, I guess, a shift in consciousness around the way people think about now taking care about themselves, you know, whether it's sleep, whether it's exercise. So I totally see this. Now, now, I guess for the people that, that are listening, you know, to really get it, what ended up being the business model of EGEN? How, how do you guys make money? Yeah. So we have uh, two business units. One is what we call EGEN Gym Tech. Here we sell software and connected hardware to gyms to make sure that they, their product works for everyone and they have a toolbox to manage the experience they want to offer digitally to uh, members on the training floor. Um, and then our second business model is uh, eGym WellPass. What we do here is we, al- we sell subscriptions to employers that then al- can allow their employees to go to thousands of fitness facilities and not only have access to those facilities, but actually work, uh, work out safely and effectively and get back reported the data to, on an individual basis. Uh, our, our most famous uh, KPI here is BioAge to all the employees, but then also in an aggregated level to the employers. Um, and so th- that's kind of our business model. So we, we sell uh, software, we sell connected hardware to gyms, and we sell subscriptions to employers in the corporate wellness space. But it all is one platform. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. I mean, hardware, software, subscriptions all coming into one. I'm sure that that didn't make it easy when raising money. Absolutely, especially because we had to, had to start with hardware. In, in the meantime, like close to 70% of our revenues is subscription, but you know, that uh, that took time, and it was always the plan like that. But at the beginning, it was really hard to to explain that to investors. I was actually quite surprised because my thesis is that you know the the rock star companies of the future have basically a threat, uh, a stack of technology which starts with connected hardware to capture 
uh, to control the user experience and, and create a captive audience, then have a layer of software where you basically create interoperability and scalability. And then on top of that, you have subscriptions that you kind of basically unlock a huge TAM. And, and, and you know, the largest companies in the world are exactly kind of uh, operating like this. Think of iPhone capturing the audience and controlling the experience. Um, you know, then uh, iOS kind of creating scalability and interoperability and then App Store, basically an unlimited TAM. Um, when you think of Tesla, connected car, automotive is like a 5% EBITDA business, but then Tesla OS creating scalability um, and interoperability. And now they sell this $15,000 autonomous driving update with 100% gross margin. Um, and you can go on like with Kindle um, and so on and so on. So kind of the largest companies in the world all do that. Uh, Mark, uh, Mark Zuckerberg once said that the biggest fail of Facebook was not going also into hardware. Um, and so for me, it was always clear that's the future. And I think it's getting even more clear um, when you think of AI and how incredibly important proprietary data and control of experience will be becoming. And so therefore, um, but, but for a beginning, like investors follow heuristics, makes a ton of sense. Software is easier than hardware, more scalable and so on. But for us, the plan always has been to make hardware a very small fraction of revenue, but a very important element of kind of creating stickiness. Um, and so in our case, we, we sell the connected hardware to really capture the experience inside Jim and, and, and the audience and control the experience, um, create proprietary data. Then with our eGym cloud, we have the largest API platform in the global gym industry that allows us really to bring together everyone in the industry and scale our experience to all users. Um, and then now with WellPass, it's our first subscription on top of all of that, where we can sell not just access to gyms, but basically making sure that people can, can consume the gym, as we say, like a pill. With like we can deliver the workout experience to your employees with zero variance um, and, and, and report back the data. And so kind of that's, that's our business model. It's been really difficult in the early days when we were basically 100% hardware business, but we found those visionary contrarian investors that kind of took a leap. Um, and in the meantime, our financials are very different, right? Because uh, hardware is a small part of the, of the business, but of the revenues, but an important element of the business composition. Um, and so now it's, it's easier for us to fundraise, but also kind of it protects us a little bit because still competitors that also want to do the same thing wouldn't have access to money because investors are still a bit shying away from, you know, hardware, software subscription, even though we believe um, kind of that's an important element of the rockstar companies in the future. But kind of that's, that, that's, that's our story here. And how much capital have you guys raised today, Billy? So... Uh, we we have raised until like a month ago or so roughly 150 million, and now we just raised an additional 225 million from Miami-based Affinity Partners. So for the people that are not good at doing the math, what's the total there? Yeah, it's a little bit shy of 400. I mean that's a lot of zeros, believe. And uh, you guys have been raising since 2012, so I mean close to 400 million since 2012. I mean. Because you guys have been with the company since 2011, I mean, in dog years, doing a startup, I mean, that's a crazy amount of time. But you guys raised in 2012, 2014, 2016, 2017, 18, 21, and 23. So, I mean, you've seen a lot. You've raised pre-COVID, you've raised post-COVID, you've also experienced what it's like to raise, you know, now in this macro environment. 
What have you learned too about raising in different, you know, uh, macro environments? Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely always. So, so what? One of the most important things is we have always built a, a longer relationship with investors before they make the investment, so that they really understand what we're doing. Kind of at my venture capital seminar back in at Columbia, I learned that oftentimes when investors invest into a company and then they attend the first board meeting, it's a oh shit meeting because they realize did I really invest into this? Um, and I try always try to to uh, prevent such an oh shit meeting and really have people only investing that fully understand what we do. So that's kind of my most important principle. We want to have full alignment on where we want to take the company in what direction. So that we can make sure that you know we don't get caught up in internal issues. Um, so th that's the most important thing I would say. Um, then there's of course also uh, you know the, the the notion around peacetime and wartime CEO. Um, and uh, you know when COVID happened, uh, I had to definitely be a wartime CEO. Most of my competitors you know chose to furlough and kind of wait and see. I decided to immediately execute on March 30, 2020, a 25% OPEX cut, and then don't furlough my team. So I was able to still build stuff that our employers, employees, and gym operators and gym users alike needed during those difficult times. And so we actually kept then the revenues afloat roughly on the same level in 2020 and 2021 compared to 2019. Um, and, and so we were able to finance my team with the revenues. And then when, when the lockdowns was over, like we kind of grew very, very fast. 2022 was a fantastic year. 2023 is going to be even greater for the first time. We will even, you know, reach uh, EBITDA profitability while we still grow, you know, 70% uh, plus. So that's a, a kind of now a really nice time. Uh, I, I'm definitely now kind of transitioning back to peacetime CEO. Um, but, but kind of to really be fully aware of who you are um, and, and, and what situation you're in, I think is critical for, um, you know, going through different phases of, 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 of the, our journey. Now, we are able to attract lots of investors kind of based on my, our financial profile, while in the beginning to attract um, uh, investors to invest into 100% hardware business at the time. Uh, again, right now, now hardware is like only 20% or something, but, but, but at the time it was 100%. But I was clearly showing the vision of that this will be just kind of an enabler to a much greater business. Um, and so we really needed strong visionaries at the time to invest. While now we, we actually can look more into, you know, financial investors that can bring a lot of uh, value add uh, to the table, which is, for example, in our case with Affinity Partners, totally the case because they're really deeply integrated into the U.S. economy and have lots of great relationships there. Now, now, what, how how has been to the experience of building a company with like a global, you know, approach? Because obviously, you have people in Germany, you have people in the U.S. Uh, people in different locations and, and building a company like that is not easy because obviously different locations means different cultures, even though it's the yeah. same company, every, every office, you know, has a different culture, a different, you know, type of, um, of flavor of it. So how has that been for you guys too? I think the benefit for us was that, uh, my co-founder Florian and I have been living on different continents and have been able to understand that 
we want like we had this american idea of you know being very ambitious um kind of really deeply integrated into our thinking when we founded eDream. and so for us it was no question whether we will be global also as a european company you always have to go internationally directly because like every single market is just a fraction of what the us is like um and so one of the first and most important decisions i think we took was from day one even when we were like a bunch of germans sitting in a small one office room uh, in in munich was that our company language from day one was only english so there was like a like four Germans sitting in one room speaking only English. But what we wanted to achieve is basically from day one is that as long as you speak English, we will be able to recruit you if you're awesome, right? Um, and, and, and so ge the German language was never integrated into our culture. And so it was never also a limiting factor. Um, you could argue it maybe also created some positive selection even within Germany for our workforce. Um, but kind of that's, that's how we've set up. And, um, in the meantime, many people always say like, uh, about us, we are the, the most American German company that you will find. Um, and, and, and we feel really good about it. We combine, you know, the being extremely reliable, process driven, efficient, all that stuff from Germany, um, humble, uh, in combination with being extremely innovative and ambitious, um, and optimistic which is kind of what we take from America and, and bring it all together in one company. So let's, let's, let's double click on, on that that you're just alluding to, being ambitious and being optimistic. Let's say you were to go to sleep tonight, Philip, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Egypt is fully realized. What does that world look like? People will say, oh, since there's Egypt, the gym works for me. Uh, I've gotten rid of my back pain of my kind of, I'm the fittest version of myself. And um, the best thing is now my employer only pays half the money for health insurance because um, we need to spend much less money on all kind of, kind of uh, painkillers and, and massages and, and, and insulin and, and other treatments that are just kind of, kind of treating the problem versus curing it because all the gyms have become and and got elevated to being the most important partner to healthcare. And people, every every person in the world goes to twice a week to a gym. It's going to be just like a 30 minutes workout. It's highly effective. It's super safe. The data is clear and visible to everyone. And, and we will be dramatically shrinking the healthcare market, increasing quality of life, and just people being happier in healthier bodies. Now, we've been talking here about the future, so I want to talk about the past, because, I mean, having been pushing this since 2011 gives time for a lot of tears, a lot of sweat, a lot of uh, blood that you put into this too, into your baby, and a lot of lessons learned. No? So uh, if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, I bring you back to the moment where you were, you know, maybe, you know, uh, coming out of Columbia uh, Business School and you were still in that moment where there was something there that you were exploring, that you thought it was exciting, you know, a problem there that you were navigating perhaps, you know, on, on bringing a solution to it. And let's say you're able to sit down your younger self and you're able to whisper to your younger self one piece of advice before building this company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? 
So I would say one of the most important things I've learned is sequential is faster than in parallel. So, for example, when we decided to go international, we launched four countries in the same moment. Um, and I think it would have been much better for us to first launch one country, fix it. Because, you know, by definition, the gym market is global. The vendors of gyms, for example, are globally everywhere exactly the same. The gym, a gym in Hong Kong, Sydney, New York, Munich, and Madrid, they look all exactly the same. Um, and so it was clear that kind of, it's not that one market works better than the other. It's just, we need to focus on those markets. And so I, I keep telling this, my team at the beginning, I made those mistakes also at the, when, when we raised in 2016 for the first time, uh, quite a bit of money it was like a $45 million round. We started too many things at the same time. Um, and then we didn't do these things perfectly well. And I've become now really excited about doing very few things extremely well in an extremely scalable way. Um, and so if I, if I could turn back the time, I would do more, kind of the vision would not change, but I would th do things more sequentially than in parallel. Because, you know, doing first A and then B and then C will kind of, that's my learning at least, will get you to, to completing C faster than if you do A, B, and C in parallel. That's incredible. So, Philip, for the people that are listening to that, they will have to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Well, you can, you can reach me on, uh, on Twitter. My Twitter handle, or now X handle, is philiprs, uh, uh, all one word. So, P-H-I-L-I-P-P-R-S. Um, like school. Um, and uh, that's probably the best way to reach me. Amazing. Well, hey, Philip, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much for your time and uh, for the great podcast you're doing. I'm listening to it almost every week. Thank you, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.